0: This is all an illusion.
1: Hey, greetings, salutations, hola. Welcome to the twelfth episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former sports illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers and a couple of non-New York Times bestsellers, and starting next week, a columnist for the Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism, to songwriting, to screenwriting, to romance novels, to comic books. You think of a genre, I want to hit it. And today's guest is ESPN's Jamel Hill, who you perhaps know best as a TV personality. You can watch her on SC6 with Michael Smith, but who I think of first and foremost as a writer. Jamel and I were colleague columnists at ESPN.com in the mid-2000s. And before that, she worked at the Raleigh News and Observer, the Detroit Free Press, the Orlando Sentinel. And today, we're talking sustainability, how to keep a career going in 2017. We'll also dive into dealing with criticism. She gets a lot of it. We'll talk about TV writing versus print writing, on and on and on. All right now, on Two Writers, Slinging the Egg. All right, Jamel, first of all... Um Thank you very much for joining me here. I really appreciate it. And uh, they always say, you know what's funny? They always say, I'm sure you get this all the time, and I get it all the time when you do interviews. They always say, I know you're busy, right? They always say, I know you're really busy, so I appreciate it. <laughs> and I always think, actually, I was, I was just kind of walking my dog. You know, I'm pretty good. And, <laughs> and I actually said to you before we start, I started TV, I was like, uh, you know, I really appreciate it, Baba. And you're like, no, I'm pretty good. You know, like, I'm, I got time. I'm good. I always think there's like this presumption that we're always like super, super, super busy, but
0: for for me, it just depends on time of day. Like you caught me at a great time of day where I'm not super busy. Like two hours from now, that might have been a different answer.
1: Right, so we're good. <laughs> right. Well, I do I do appreciate you doing this, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna throw a compliment at you. It's a true story. Um, so we worked together, we wrote together at ESPN.com back in the mid two thousands, and but I don't think we've ever met in person. Am I correct on that?
0: I think you are correct on that.
1: Yeah, I think I am correct. But one thing you've done multiple I guess multiple times, you've definitely spoken to my sports journalism class via Skype. And then uh, recently, I had a young writer, a young woman, who was really struggling in the business, and I said, would you mind talking to her? And you were like, absolutely. And um, I, I feel like there's something to be said for the paying it, uh, you know, paying it forward of, of media. And uh, I think you do that very well. So, I start Jamel, I start with a compliment to you. I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you being that way. So uh, well,
0: well, thank you. um and and you're right. I mean, there is something about that in this business that um, that makes that really important. People certainly did it for me uh, without me even asking them to. They just naturally invested in me, invested in my career, and I would be remiss if I did not do the same, especially because this is such a tricky landscape in our business now that I think, compared to when I was coming of age as a journalist, it's just much harder and a lot more potholes and more uncertainty. Um, and so I, I know that a lot of younger journalists, they're in constant need of, of kind of reassurance and in and, and terms of trying to figure things out.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I want to start with something. I have no rhyme or reason for starting this way, but I'm going to start with it. I recently, just like five minutes ago, was in like this really annoying Facebook exchange was someone from my hometown and I just can't resist you know I come from a pretty conservative pro-Trump hometown and end up getting in these stupid arguments and then I feel like I just you know like I feel gross afterwards and last night I was going through uh Jamel Hill's Facebook page and you have this way about you on Facebook I just have to laugh because there's like this weird graceful engagement slash detachment and my favorite is this You recently went on a vacation, looked like a really good vacation. And someone who clearly loves Florida State wrote, and I quote, your fine ass would look way better with me on your arm. And I don't care about Michael Smith gets mad. I know y'all fucking on under blah, blah, blah. Right. And your response was, wow, all that brought on by vacation, by vacation photos. Weird. And I'm like, that is so ridiculously great. Then there are other people like, I'm reading, I mean, I could read your Facebook comments alone for seven years and be a pretty happy person. Like, um, someone's, you know, like, what do you know about blah, blah, blah? I played sports in high school, have been covering sports for almost 20 years. Please elaborate, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I'm sure when your favorite team is playing on our network, you don't have that opinion. You know, like, on and on and on. You handle this stuff almost like smack, smack. It's almost like I can see you like picking the grime out of your fingernails while you're doing it. Like, yeah, I'll take two seconds for you and I'll dismiss you real quick. Um, why don't you just block people? Like, why do you do that?
0: Well, the, the funny thing is you're you're so correct about my Facebook persona, which is a lot different than maybe other social media platforms that I use. I'm really not on Facebook all that much. And um, I'll post something a couple times a week, tops. I don't I go through the comments here and there. Um, and the vacation, like the more personal stuff that I post are always the most fun to go through because I am amazed sometimes at like what people get from photos of the things they say. And it's just like so amusing to me, as you pointed out with the first person who like from one photo, just I was like, wow, that's just a lot to be common with somebody's <laughs> photo, somebody's vacation photo. Right. So I'm 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 more at especially in this day and age with, you know, with the political climate we're in, I am. Impressed and in awe by the amount of bold stupidity. <laughs> like I'm just impressed yeah. by it. Like, wow, you're you're so stupid and so wrong and so certain and yet so loud. Like I don't understand that. Right. So every day I just um, go through this kind of uh, you know real- realization that. You know, the stupid people are kind of winning right now, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm mad, but I can't be mad because I'm so impressed because they're so stupid. So, so you're just, impressed
1: by their stupidity.
0: I am so impressed by it because typically, uh, I guess, and maybe this is where background and, and being a journalist comes into it, is that usually speaking in, in our profession, mm-hmm. it used to be that you, you sort of engaged in a bold opinion if you had, as they call it, receipts, but people are like coming to these arguments and literally knowing nothing, and yet feeling so smart. And I just don't. I'm just amazed by how that happens. <laughs> so, it is amazing.
1: Yeah, it is it's, amazing. it's pretty
0: amazing. So I was. So sometimes, um, maybe like once a week, I'll just go through some of my Facebook comments, and I'm like, "Wow, people really think this way. This is
1: amazing." You don't find it depressing though.
0: Um, sometimes I do. Um, because I feel like. At, at no other time in my life have we been more ignorant and ill-informed than we are now. And so as somebody, and I'm sure this is this way for you too, as someone who is, uh, who prides themselves on information, who's written as many great books as you have, who prides themselves on being thorough, um, you know, people really don't want to challenge themselves. Like they rather, they prefer emotions to facts. And that's not to say emotions can't be supported by facts. I mean, you can come out with a premise and of course support it with, um, Various information, but like you could somebody, there are people that will literally believe the sky is green and you could pull the head off there, you could pull their head off their body and point it toward a blue sky. And I'm like, nope, it's still green. I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> like, I, I don't. Yeah, so I guess the, the level in which people are dug in now, despite knowing nothing, is depressing. But I guess my disarming method um mechanism is to be amused by it as opposed to depressed
1: by it yeah that's really good i i actually i mean this is way off the off the path here i'm in a way mad at myself because after the election i was really angry and i ended up there were a lot of people again from my small, my hometown who were very pro-trump and ended up blocking them on twitter or on facebook mm-hmm. and i feel like in hindsight i end up coming off like the intolerant one do you know what I mean? Like it's better, maybe it's better just to read and ignore than it is to completely dismiss. I don't well, know. I
0: don't, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one because I do also understand that, you know, to take a, 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 short, a short tangent, one of the great things I think about, um, you know, last weekend or the opening weekend of college football was that it was maybe the first day or maybe one of very few days where my timeline and was not filled with with politics and not just politics but what I what I've termed political trauma because mm-hmm. every day in this country we're being traumatized in a new way and it was one of the few days where that actually wasn't happening and it was such a refreshing thing and um and so I do understand that there's this part of us that for our own mental well-being there are certain things you just don't feel like being exposed to and I don't think it means that you're intolerant I think it means to some degree that you're safeguarding your own psycho saying like, you know what, I feel this way, they have every right to feel this way. But at the same time, I don't feel like hearing it. And I don't think there's anything. I don't think that's intolerant. I think that's just a reality, especially right now. I mean, it'd be one thing. I mean, for years, I think most of us have had um, friends that are conservatives or Republicans mm-hmm. or just or if you're a conservative, you've had liberal friends, like there was, there were certainly political differences always that existed in our, in our social circles. But now it's just like the, the sides are just so, um, they're just so dug in and it's just so nasty that I don't really blame people for kind of cutting certain people or certain thought and opinions out of their lives.
1: Right. It's kind of like, I can understand you wanting lower taxes. I can't understand you wanting to ban Muslims from entering the country. Exactly.
0: Like, there is a difference. And unfortunately, things that should be just simple, um, should be just simple issues of decency have been become known as politics. And I was just recently talking to somebody about this is like we we're treating the term politics like it's a crockpot where you just throw everything in there. And it's like everything's not politics. Some some things are just right and wrong. All right. Like, you know, like you said, tax reform. Healthcare, care. That's politics, okay? Infrastructure, politics, totally agree. But when you're talking about coming at people's dignity, their way of life, um, when you're talking about disenfranchising people, when you're talking about racism, sexism, misogyny, that's decency. That is not politics. And, you know, that is not something that should be debatable. There's no pro to that. Right. What's the pro side of, of being that? So, I guess that's where I'm more disappointed is that things that used to just be a matter of how you treat people have come in this age to be known as being, pol- you're, you're, if you're nice, you're politically correct. Like what? No, I'm just a decent person. Like that's not the same thing.
1: Right, I agree hundred um, percent. I'm gonna segue, I'm gonna, use, I'm gonna do a, a lame writing transition. You the word disappointed. And I'm gonna tell you, Jamel, when you first sort of transitioned more toward TV, I think I was disappointed. Uh, and the reason is when we were both writing for ESPN, I, I don't think I'd ever read you in Orlando. I say that with no offense. I just I didn't mm-hmm. go to Orlando. I'm,
0: I'm understand no yeah. taking. <laughs> and I was
1: like, oh my God, she's a really good writer. Like I really love your writing. And I feel like I, I'm I, there I've had more than one conversation when I'm like, no, she's a really good writer. And it's kind of like, oh, she writes also? You know, like and I wonder like do you still view yourself as a writer? Like, are you still do you still think yourself writer first, TV second? Does that or does that change over time? Are you not are you not a writer per se anymore?
0: Um, I'm not a journalist anymore. I'll always be a writer. And I make that distinction. And both me and my co-host, Michael Smith, often on TV we call ourselves former journalists. And the reason that we do is because we don't want to give any illusion about what we are. And for that matter, both of us, because journalism was the profession that raised us it's our first love we have so much respect for the craft that we would never call ourselves something that we aren't the fact of the matter is now in television i'm friends with certain athletes um i don't go into locker rooms yes on some level my commentary and opinions um are you know i'm held accountable for them and have no problem as you know my rule of thumb generally speaking is i'm not going to say something about about you on tv that I wouldn't say to you to your face, uh-huh. and so while I might carry that particular credo as you know part of my my uh, you know sort of way I view television, you know I'm not a journalist anymore. <laughs> so um, I'm I am there to you know I'm a sports broadcaster, probably an entertainer in more regards than anything. So um, yeah, I consider myself a writer at heart, but when we talk about journalism, that's something entirely some days i'm a journalist some days i'm not now we approach our show and how we put it together with a strong sense of journalism but we're also not naive or ignorant to what it is we're actually doing every day i hope that makes sense
1: yeah did you have to like did you have a moment where you're like officially i am not a journalist anymore or was that a gradual sort of understanding of a changing of a role in your life
0: no once i started doing television every single day and signed on to once i left writing because i i left writing officially in 2013 and so once I did that and my the new contract I signed had no writing component in it um, nor did I push for one I just you know I made the decision in like I'm not I'm no longer a writer or a journalist like I am a TV person now so um, yeah I mean I write from time to time I wrote a piece for the undefeated but that was the first time I'd written a piece in maybe three years so I never thought I'd ever go through that phase in my career, but I like to think that I'm still a writer trapped in, um, you know, sort of a, a television per- persona. And I, I think that's probably why, I, I, why I'm able to look at things even still with the sensibilities and the critical thinking of a writer. So um, yeah, no, it was it wasn't a sad re- realization necessarily because I know I can always come back to to writing. It was just more or less just being honest and real about what I really am now and what my function is in sports media.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I feel like I could not, I don't think I could just give up writing. Like I think I would, it would, it would be hard for me. And I wonder like, is there, but I could also see a tremendous relief in it. You know, like writing is torture. Yeah. You know? Do you feel that? About, like, is there, was there a sense of like, ah, oh, I don't have a deadline and I don't have, you know, like, is there some of that?
0: No. Well, it's actually the opposite. I being in television, especially doing it every day like when I was still writing doing tv on the side I didn't necessarily I I think I then I started to wonder and and really ask myself uh honestly like am I burning out on the writing tip but I think that was more of just about schedule and workload and that kind of thing but now that I've been doing tv every day I have such appreciation for what I used to do like I miss writing I, I whenever Wright Thompson comes to town I just we go to dinner and hang out and I'm just like just tell me about your life. I remember that. <laughs> I, re- I remember those times where I could pick, you know, pick up You go to an assignment and you're doing, you know, uh, an incredible assignment for three, four days. You torture yourself, you write for a couple more days and then you're done with it. And then you're on to the next thing. The thing I realized about television that makes it so hard and why it's such a grind is that it's the monotony. Like in, in writing, there are change-ups, there's versatility, it's different stories with different nuances to them you're talking to different people so there's always a change and tv there is no change it's same time i'm on six to seven p.m you know we're talking about these stories like it's just getting used to the monotony of television has been very difficult and so with that in mind um it's just made me appreciate it that much more and not to mention that like as a writer you're you're kind of like your own state you're your own government. <laughs> you know, you 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 control when you interview people, how you interview them. In most cases, especially if you get to a place like we were at ESPN.com, um, dot and, and you're writing more on your own terms as a senior writer. You're controlling so much of what you do. You don't have to rely on anyone else. But in TV, I have obviously a co-host and I have producers and then you have executives you have to answer for. There's just so many more people to answer for so many more things to pay off. And yes, you are answering to sponsors and those relationships in ways that you never had to worry about as a writer. And so there are days, um, especially as we're, you know, going through some growing pains with our show and trying to figure out our identity, um, since I don't know if we're even at the six month mark, um, there are days where I was like, wow, I remember the days of writing in my pajamas, watching Young and the Restless as I'm banging out a column. Those were the days.
1: Right, yeah. I can understand that actually. That's very interesting. Do you have days where you're like, I just don't care about this subject. Like, is it hard to get, you know, like I kind of don't care about sports nearly as much as I used to, as I've gotten older, I've lost the passion for the day to day. Um, Do you need to somehow keep that even if you don't always have it?
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there are days where, you know, you you do kind of have to fake it a little bit on TV because you, you know, it's an important story. But you're just so tired of talking about it um, that it kind of you just kind of don't care. And there are certain stories that every year there's like five or six stories that just exhaust themselves, you know, beyond belief. (laughs) And you just kind of have to do these mental tricks or find some subtle nuance that you hadn't found before to discuss some angle that maybe will bring some, something fresh to it or add new perspectives. Like, I'm so tired of talking about Ezekiel Elliott. I can't even tell you. Right. Like, I'm so tired of talking about him. Right. And it's an important story. And obviously, <clears throat> domestic violence is a serious, complicated, and huge issue. So it's not about me not caring about domestic violence. It's just that I'm just tired of Ezekiel Elliott and talking about him. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? You know, because this story has just been going on, it feels like, for so long. So, yeah, that happens a lot like in TV, you're much more aware of it because you're on every day as opposed to if I'm a columnist for ESPN.com, I only write about Ezekiel Elliott or talk about him if I want to. Right. So um so yeah, I mean that part is is always been difficult. And of course there are sports you're just like not that naturally interested in that you have to pretend that you are. Right. Or that you have to see, you know, the storyline in it and you know get compelled that way. So for me, like you, I understand what you mean by that. I still love live sporting events, don't get me wrong, but I'm much more fascinated and uh, enthralled by the storylines as opposed to the athletes or the sports themselves.
1: Right. Um, I was watching, uh, I was on, again, I was stalking you on Facebook last night, and uh, I was not looking through your vacation photos, though. You'll be happy. <laughs> uh, it's, um, and you do, the, you do these uh, little segments every now and then from, uh, called, I, I guess they're called Views from the Six. Am I correct yeah. on that? And yeah. uh, I'm assuming you write them. If you Yep, I, like, do. And, uh,
0: I do. I do all my writing. I, was, yeah, no, like, I, I may be on TV, but I, like, I write all my scripts.
1: <laughs> yeah, I assumed you did. And yeah. um, there was one I thought was really, really good. You taught uh, you know, Judd Heathcote, the legendary Michigan State coach, died recently. And uh, you did a sort of segment on him. And you started by saying, uh, so my sophomore year of college, several trusted sources told me that our basketball coach, Judd Heathcote, actually taught a coaching basketball class. Pardon the corny pun, but this seemed like a layup. Blah, um, blah, 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 blah. And I was wondering... What is the difference between writing for TV and writing for print? And I was wondering specifically, like if you were writing a column, um, would you have written, pardon the corny pun, but this seemed like a layup? Or do you know what I mean? Like, is there language you would use in TV that you wouldn't use in print? Is there a way to go about it on TV that you don't go about it in print?
0: Yeah, I think because you're much more aware that you don't have a long time uh, in in print. I, I mean, I'm sorry, on TV. And then on TV, you actually, it does lend itself and allow you to be a little more corny. Than
1: you probably <laughs> yeah, right, right, would. Right.
0: If you're writing, and, you, and you're that was a a dead-on accurate assessment. Like, if I were writing a column, I don't know if I would have said that. You right. know what I mean? Right. Um, I might have led it the same way, but, you know, the corny pun, I might have left without. But on TV, it kind of allows you the latitude to do that. One of the reasons why we started Views from the Six, and as anybody's thinking of it, um, yes, that is a straight ripoff from Drake. But as I often try to ex. <laughs> As I often explain to them, us calling the show The Six is not a ripoff from Drake because internally at ESPN, the 6PM Sports Center has been known for The Six for like, as, as The Six for like 30 years. We right. just kind of brought it publicly. But Views from The Six as, as a kind of play on Drake and to make fun of the fact that people thought we ripped The Six from Drake, we just like, all right, let's just rip one straight from them and call it Views from The Six. That's funny. Anyway, I digress. Um, it is it's basically a parting shot you know, like what, what they used to do on Sports Reporters. Mm-hmm. And that's actually our opportunity to to kind of get in touch with the writers that we both used to be. So it's like, it's a connection to our past and what got us to that point. And that's why we enjoy doing them. I and that's why we only do them, you know, once a week. And yeah, you write a lot differently for TV. It's much more because you're trying to connect with the audience. And while writing is also conversational, it's like, it's a different type of conversation. And um, it took me a while to actually learn how to write for TV because I was writing way too long. And I, hopefully this doesn't sound bad, but I was thinking about it a little too much. With TV, there's a simple, you know, it's, yeah. it's supposed to be simple. And you know how it is like when you're writing a, a column or whatever, you kind of agonize a little bit. And I was doing that with things that were nothing but a 15 second video. Like I'm supposed to write for 15 seconds right. and it'd be like 200 words there. And my producers <laughs> right. were looking at this like you do realize this is only 15 seconds. I was like, oh, but this is beautiful. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. And so um, I had to learn honestly, like just how to be more concise. And that's one thing writing for TV does teach you where as yeah, sure you want to be concise when you, when you write but uh, when you're writing for print, but as you know, like you can fight with an editor or whatever and say, no, this is the most important paragraph of all mankind. It must be left in there. And you might win 50 percent of those battles. But in television, because time is ultimately your producer and your enemy, you're not going to beat time. Like it's, if, if it's 15 seconds, I have 15 seconds. There's nothing I can do about it. Right. So it's just it's it's a different kind of um, writing that is equally as challenging just in a
1: different way well one thing i think is really interesting is it's like i've, I've talked to, to different people about this it's almost like when you're writing you need to sound like you do when you talk but you don't actually sound like you do when you talk. like if you and i are having a conversation you probably wouldn't say to me pardon a corny pun but it's right. like layup. but it <laughs> right. sounds like something you would say in a conversation you know it's like it's <laughs> yeah. almost like a little bit of i don't know what it is it's like a little bit of trickery you have to sound conversational even though it's not really conversational,
0: yeah, and and that can be that can be kind of difficult at times because you want to sound like yourself, but you also need to you know think about and pass along a critical thought, <laughs> and so right. it is, uh, and especially when you're you know you're talking about something in that case with Judd Heathcote that is that is personal to you. It's um it, it's just a different kind of rhythm. In television than there than there is in print, and you get a little bit more time to to think about what you want to say and, and the ideas you want to convey. Obviously, when you're writing them down, and um, yeah, so it just so much of what you do on TV is just complete organized chaos. That you're sometimes you know much like a lot of commentators have been discussing Michael Bennett and what happened with him. You got 25 seconds to basically sum up. Racism and (laughs) you gotta, you know, you kind of have to have your thoughts in order to do that, as opposed to if I were writing a column about Michael Bennett, that conversation might go a lot differently.
1: Yeah, that seems kind of thankless, actually. Um, (laughs) I mean, seriously, it just seems like how do you, I guess, you just get used to it, but it seems like I don't know how you could possibly take a subject that big, that complicated, that broad, that important. And yeah, you got twenty seconds. All right, do your best. Like it seems right. almost like, well, why should I even bother trying? It seems almost impossible.
0: Right. I mean it but it but yet the the thing that is um so fascinating about the medium of television is because television is so powerful that you may have one minute to discuss Michael Bennett, but it's a mem- it's a minute that people are gonna always remember. You know, it, it the reach of it is uh, it's sometimes incomprehensible versus, say, a, a column about it.
1: Right. Very interesting. I, um, you mentioned that you wrote a story for The Undefeated, which I actually have in front of me. I read it last night. And uh, it kind of, again, it was like a good reminder that Jamel Hill is a freaking great writer. The, the headline was Detroit, the movie Detroit, tells the story of the 67 riots only without black women. And your, uh, your lead was, as soon as I turned right onto 12th Street, her shoulders tensed. She was suddenly uncomfortable. She shifted in her seat. My mother is a tough woman. She is a survivor in every sense. She survives child, uh, childhood sexual abuse from an uncle, a violent rape at gunpoint by a stranger, an alcoholic mo- uh, mother, divorce, poverty. And this street, 12th Street, now named Rosa Parks Boulevard, was also on the list of awful things my six-year-old mother had survived. She has not been here more than a decade, she, uh, and she only went back then because while pursuing her bachelor's degree, a classmate needed footage of the hood for a school project. She knew just where to take them. And uh, oh, my mother's discomfort made me wonder if I was making a mistake bringing her back to where she lived through one of the most violent rebellions of the 20th century. And I bring that up because I, last night I also found a column you wrote very early on when we were both writing for page two. Uh, and your lead was, I was still a kid when I asked my mother why she thought my father was better out of my life than in it. It wasn't easy for my mother to tell me, but the story went like this. She walked into the bathroom one day and found my father passed out on a toilet seat. He had me cradled in one arm and a heroin, heroin needle sticking out of the other. It seems like you're not, when you write, you're not afraid or bashful about sort of delving into your family history, delving into sort of emotions that would be raw and kind of uncomfortable. Uh, You took your mom back to the neighborhood where she clearly didn't want to go. Um, Why do you do it? Why?
0: Well, I expose those parts of myself um, because I think people have, especially if you're in the position that, that I am, that there's this sense because these big four letters behind me and being on the six o'clock sports center, like people really do have this fictionalized idea of what your life was really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and not necess- and not just that part of it. It's just that all these experiences that I've experiences that I've openly discussed in big and small ways uh, have contributed to the person that I am. And I'm one of those people that I, I don't believe nece- I don't believe in regrets. I feel like everything happens for a reason. That's not to say there aren't things that I'm sorry for, but they're not things that I regret because without those things happening, whether good or bad, that in some ways all led to me being here, to this moment, to me having to experience this. And so, um, you know, with my family and uh, our history, I think especially... You know, for people of color and especially for women, I think there's um, an important sense of community I like to get across. And just in the sense that, you know, everybody has gone through something. And some people have gone through things that you probably had no idea that they went through. And so I don't want to be known as this just kind of one dimensional, you know, person on TV. I, I want people to understand um, the history in which I come from. And why I speak about things the way that I do. And some of that can be only explained by explaining my life
1: history. But isn't your mom, so you're taking your mom, you take your mom back to Detroit where she grew up. Isn't she kind of like, ugh. Like I've had a million times, Jamel, where my parents are like, please stop writing about us. You know, because I'm kind (laughs) of like you. Seriously. My mom wanted to kill me one time. I wrote a story for the Tennessean back when I was there about her love of flea markets. And she was like, (laughs) and I put her age in. And she's like, seriously, I am going to kill you. Like, you take your, like, is, is your mom at all like, do we really have to do this? Like, do you, do you really have to write about, do you have to write about your dad and his hair? Like, does he, do you really have to do that? You know, because it, it does bring pain and it brings uncomfort and it brings family anger, maybe?
0: No, actually, my mother didn't look at it that way. And in fact, she was very grateful that I did that story because these are, while it may seem like I'm opening a wound Um, For her, I was kind of helping her close one because she had not been back, as I mentioned in the story, but one other time. And I think she was while she was uh, um, certainly emotional about returning. I think there was a part of her that after it was all done that also felt very empowered because she had survived that. And. My mother, with everything she has gone through, sometimes she doesn't take stock exactly of what she has survived because, you know, you're so in the moment and you're so day to day with it that you don't appreciate the journeys that you've been through. So for her, it helped her appreciate that journey. And so we had discussed it growing up between her and my grandmother, who's no longer living the riot so many times that I felt like it was kind of a perfect opportunity to kind of tell what they're you know story was and even my dad who I've written about a few times um and not just about you know his his drug use um or anything like that but i think those things have actually helped them and they've never ever expressed that they want me to stop writing about them. So, or discussing them on TV. I mean, that's just the print version of what you've seen. (laughs) I've I've, I've referenced them a billion times, you know, on the show. And so, uh, and not to mention in in interviews and podcasts and that kind of stuff. And so they've never, um, now granted, I don't think my mother actually understands what a podcast is or how to look (laughs) at one. So I do have that going for me. Um, Same with my dad, but I, I think they are, Um, I think they're more it it gives them a sense of what they've accomplished, uh, believe it or not, as opposed to like, stop telling my business. Besides, I consider it almost a a weird kind of payback because my my mother is one of those moms and I'm sure everybody can relate to this, that will tell like we'll be in a checkout line and tell all my business to a perfect stranger so oh i God. figure you know what i'm saying i'm just like oh well this is just returning the favor right far right, so right. right you know so yeah
1: Um, I mean, it sounds like technologically we might have the same mother because my mother when we when she facetimes with us she cannot get her head in the middle of the screen so i'm always facetiming with like my mom's right eye and an ear that's it i can't see her <laughs> on the screen. <laughs>
0: Have you ever seen that Albert Brooks movie Mother? No. Which I think, oh, Jeff, you have to see this movie. Like, it, it perfectly crystallizes everybody's mother. And in the, in, in the movie, the running joke is, like, uh, it's Debbie Reynolds and Albert Brooks. And Debbie Reynolds is playing, you know, his mother. And she does not know how to work the video phone, and it's just, and it's the same thing. It's like she's half cut out, and they keep yelling at her about how to work this video phone. So I'm not surprised that you know, I I could
1: see that very very clearly. Mrs. Perlman struggles. She also thinks it's Facebooking instead of Facetiming. But otherwise, we're good. (laughs) Otherwise, we're pretty good. (laughs) That's Uh, fine. Yeah. Um. What do you uh, what do you think about like the state of the written word nowadays? Looking from someone who kind of left it a little bit. Like, do you? Do you look around and do you think, wow, there's a lot of great writing now? Do you look around and think we're, we're really – Twitter's kind of beating the intelligence out of us. Like how do you feel about what you're – <laughs> well, kind of is. I mean I, I feel like that's undeniable. But what do you what do you see out there? Do you like where writing is? Um, Sports depends,
0: writing? On, depends on the day because I, I, I will credit Twitter and social media for this. Like there's a lot of writers now that I am exposed to that I don't know if I ever would have come across if it were not for – social media honestly and so I that part I'm really grateful uh about and and exposing me to to how the craft is executed by other writers that were just not normally in my wheelhouse of paying attention um to certain writers so that part I love the part that more or less drives me crazy is that there are and this is, you know, the journalist slash copy editor and me, man, there's a lot of mistakes and mm-hmm. stories now that I see, you know, and that's the thing where you're doing digital media. And I know they, a lot of them have their own editorial process, but I see a lot of mistakes, a lot of typos structurally, you know, the people sort of, as my editor used to harp on me about, or one of my editors used to harp on me about, is like backing into their opinion or backing into a point or backing into the story. So I just noticed how just it's just a lot of that. And while um, I, I, well, I grew up in a time, and you probably did too, as a journalist, where you were not supposed to make yourself like the story. Right. And I think there are times for that. Obviously, you pointed to, I know this is probably sound hypocritical to people because you just pointed out two pieces where obviously I made myself and my family to some degree the the story but that was you know kind of based off what I was writing but I but it seems like every time there's a profile done on somebody especially if they're famous the writer almost always puts themselves in the story and it drives me crazy like it's so many stories that start with um yeah I was uh at the mall with bradley cooper like i don't care that you were at the mall you know what i'm saying right and it's so many stories that start that way these days as opposed to kind of how it used to be where you didn't really do that so they may seem like very small things but those are the pet peeves of writing that drive me crazy and i just feel like there's so much more prevalent now i haven't even gotten to the journalism part but just with the writing part that's what kind of you know kind
1: of just drives me
0: insane
1: i think part of that actually is So you have to be really good to pull that off well. And I think, like, Ray Thompson pulls it off well. Gary Smith used to pull it off well. And I think a lot of people read those guys or read people who do it well and think it's the way to do it. When it's not, it's the way to do it if you can do it really, really well. And there's a difference. You know what I mean?
0: It it is. And and in many ways, it is a tribute to them because there was this time. And I think, you know, it still exists. But there was, like, a a really – There was this this period where when I would go to journalism classes and talk to journalism students, everybody wanted to be Bill Simmons, right? Right. And I used to try to tell them, like, there's one Bill Simmons and there's what has happened to his career is likely not going to happen to to yours. That's not to discourage you. Right. But, you know, like, because Bill, he could write thousands of words and have all these pop culture references. And then all of a sudden, everybody, all these younger journalists want to emulate that. And it's the same thing with write. Like, write, write can put himself in a story. He could write about his dad and his relationship to golf and all these other things. He could do that because he's a brilliant writer and he's been doing this for many years, but everybody can't do that. So um, it's just, I, I, it's a compliment to them, um, but it's also why I, in, I encourage so many younger journalists when they ask, ask me advice and what piece of advice would you give me? Very simple, get better at being you. Whether that be in TV, on TV or whether that be in print, get better at being you, like because there is only one you. That's the thing you automatically bring to the table. Don't try to have a career that emulates Mike Wilbon or me or right. you or Bill Simmons or Wright Thompson. Do you? And I mean that in every
1: sense of the word. Yeah, very well said. I agree. I like how open you are, and I have something I've always wanted to ask you, and um, because so I, uh, I probably haven't done one as high high pro actually. I've had some pretty big mistakes. You, several years ago, you wrote a column where you ended up having to apologize for. Right. You said rooting for the South is like saying Hitler was a victim. And here's the funny thing, Jamel, and I'm going to be totally honest. I'm like a Jewish guy with family from Germany. I didn't really think it was that big a deal. Like, I, I sort of understood what you're saying. And it, you had to issue a public apology, and it became this thing, and you were suspended for a week. And I wonder, like, I just think, like, writing is very hard. And I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's like saving lives, but it, you know, it's hard and it's daunting and it beats on you. And you put stuff out there and you're turning stuff around. And you like, is it even is it, is it even possible to avoid mistakes in a career? Do you know what I mean? Like, you just you just say like after that happens. I know you do your, but is it just kind of like you know what shit happens? I made a mistake, or like, are there ways you feel like writers, young writers, I guess in particular, can avoid screwing up?
0: Well, um, when I talk about that, uh, I usually I, I look at it from this vein It's like you can sc- you'll screw up at any at any moment. Like all of us are like a mistake away. And I, I say that like when I go back and think about that incident in particular, what I thought more than anything is the fact is two things. One, that is what happens when you don't have a column idea and you try to force one and you haven't done enough reporting.
1: That's Ah, one. Interesting. Right.
0: Two, you know, a lot of people can write humor. I'm not one of them. I may be humorous on Twitter. I may be humorous in person. I'm not a humor writer. So my attempt to be funny was a complete failure. So I was way outside my lane on two accounts. Um, But avoiding mistakes in your career is impossible. And um, sure, you can as 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 alert, as aware, and as heightened as my journalistic sensibilities were at that time, even though, you know, I was younger, I was still experienced enough to know better. And even now with television, you really have to be careful because, you know, you're not going to get a second chance to say something. And all it takes is one sound bite. That's all it takes. And something is taken out of context or you wind up, your mind winds up racing or thinking too fast or that kind of s- stuff. Um, and, and I say this not because it was funny, but like my co- my co-host has cursed twice on television <laughs> and he was not, it, it was no big deal. It was actually funny to say, one of the best moments we had on the show, but that's what I'm saying. Like on television is a medium with no matter how smart you are, how much, you, how much you've done it, how many times you've done the show, how experienced you are. Like you can get carried away on television easily so you know all you have to do is just for me I just try to keep that in mind and I tell myself constantly the thing that's going through my head most days on the show as we're talking about stuff is slow down slow down don't let your mind get to racing and so you wind up saying something that you really didn't intend to say um so I, I I do tend to look at the the mistakes as as gifts in some regards, but timing is everything. And I'll be honest, Jeff, like I've thought about this more than anything in the years since is I don't know if I could make that mistake today and still have my job. I don't know if I could. My, my inclination was especially because at that point I had only been at ESPN a couple years. It's not like I had a lot of seniority. Um, It's not like I had a lot of political capital at ESPN. I think if I do that now in that same situation, they'd probably fire me.
1: You know what's interesting and crazy, and I haven't thought about it. For some reason, you saying that right there popped in my head. The whole tape with Billy Bush and Trump, like, Billy Bush doesn't have a job and Donald Trump is president. How crazy mm-hmm. is that? How crazy is that? <laughs> I, <laughs> it's know. I'm I'm,
0: I know. I mean, like, I, I don't think that, I, I don't know if it's because people are are less forgiving. I just think that the reach of when you make a mistake is so much more vast. And even though social media was in existence then and you know blogs were in existence and it got picked up by everybody and it was in every publication but it, there is not this sense of you know social media when especially when an issue uh kind of gets out there you know just ask joel olstein like people are coming with the knives and pitchforks yeah and the they're they're coming with them so in some respects, like the perception becomes so much more worse than the reality very quickly, a brush fire on social media. It doesn't take a lot. And I've seen it cost people their jobs, their livelihoods over mistakes that 15, 20 years ago might've just died down after a day or so.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I always ask this, I'm curious, what's your craziest, what's your craziest journalistic experience? I know that's a, that's a wide, oh, you know, I, I always pull out the rocker story for myself and I feel like everyone has a rocker yeah. <laughs> story. Everyone has one.
0: Um. Well, I guess it, it, some of it depends on how you de- de- define crazy. I, look, I, I, I have never, I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody with the, um, uh, somebody as much of a, you know, as polarizing as. Say John Rocker was because it, you know he was obviously very outward about his op- opinion. I've interviewed polarizing people, but not necessarily because of the things they said, but more or less because of the things they had done. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I I probably have to say one of I'm going to go in a crazy fun direction, but like it was probably when I, I covered the World Cup in South Africa, and
1: <laughs> this was for who for this was
0: for ESPN.com. Okay, <laughs> and, and it's just every day uh, I, I learned so much. It was easily my best uh, and most insightful and most fun international reporting experience I've ever had. My it, it probably is the best assignment I've ever gotten, even though, you know, I thought my writing was good, but I didn't think it was great, you know, necessarily. But all the experiences that we had outside of that, from going to illegal bars to seeing one of my colleagues buy poison on the street, it was <laughs> It was, like, it was like every day we were just finding a different way to get into shit. Like every day, right. <laughs> it like, and it was pretty amazing. And and when I talk about talk to you earlier about you know missing, um, you know uh, that sense of 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 a different adventure, I miss that sense of adventurousness with writing. Oh, um, probably my other crazy experience. I can't tell you who it was, but it was okay. a a former NFL player that I interviewed, and I went to. Um, his apartment to interview him and he had a gun right on his chair and didn't even realize he had it on there. And I was like, oh, is that a gun? (laughs) Like, I didn't say anything to him. I was just like, I didn't ask any questions or whatever. And I was like, okay, so he just has a gun just chilling, like, hanging out. I'm like, all right. Right.
1: All right, then. Okay,
0: then. I was like, uh, so we're not staying here for this, are are we? Right. (laughs) But we we weren't, actually. We were going to another the location. I just happened to meet him there, but yeah, he just, and it was not a legal gun either. So, (laughs) so I was like, all right, that's interesting.
1: You know what's funny? Jack, when I first got to Sports Illustrated, uh, Jack McCallum, he said to me, he's like, you're not going to make the most money in the world, blah, 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 blah. But when you go back to your high school reunions, you're always going to have the best stories. And I think that's, I believe it's true. It's
0: true. There's nothing better than when you get around you know a group of journalists and you're trading war stories and some of the things that you hear um from them is just incredible oh, <laughs> incredible man. stories
1: i agree I, you know some of the best moments of my life came when i was at si and we would we'd play on the uh, we had like an si basketball team and afterwards you know you go to a bar and like you just gather around and like steve russian and chris ballard and john wertheim i was just hearing stories from the field can take. Yeah. It's just the best. It truly is the it best. Is. Yeah. It is. It
0: does. And it just energizes you a little bit like, man, I can't wait to I get to tell a story like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, let me throw one more at you and I will uh, I will let you depart. Um when I uh, a couple months ago as I mentioned earlier, I reached out to you and said that I have a young a young writer, she's a woman, she's very good, and she feels like um, she feels like in this business women don't help women the way they should. That was her take. She said, mm-hmm. I ask women for help, and they just – other reporters, and they're just not willing. And I'm going to tell you, I, I reached out to you and one other very well-known reporter, and I actually pulled up her note back to me. I won't use her name, just like you with the gun. But she said – and someone I know. And she's like, I'm going to be flat-out honest with you. I get like six to eight of these requests a week, and I'm trying to go through stuff and what's the most important. So I'm going to pass on this one. And I wonder, like, do you – and you were great. Like, great. And, and I wonder, like, is she right in her assessment or is that just one person's experience or do you feel like there is a reluctance among women in sports media to help other women in sports media?
0: Uh, I think she's, I think she's, she's, she's right. Um, now it is a difference, I guess, to play devil's advocate. Cause I get busy too. And I always tell like when young people, they're constantly asking me, look at their clips, listen mm-hmm. to their podcast. Um, and I'm, I keep it real with them. I say, look, I am backloaded right now. I will look at it, it just might take me some time. So please don't get impatient with me. I have no problem doing this, but it just might take me some time because you do get those requests often. And um, so yeah, that's one part of it, just like general busyness. And we all get so wrapped up in our own lives. Sometimes it's hard to leave space for other people. Okay, that's one side of it. But the other side of it is, and I I say this coming from a TV perspective, and television, that's absolutely the case. And I think what's happened, and it happens this way for people of color, too, and, and not just women, is that there is an unspoken, insinuated feeling that you get that, okay, we're only going to let a couple of you through this door. Like, only a couple of you were going to allow to break this ceiling. So y'all decide amongst yourselves who, who is it going to be. And then it becomes even though I don't watch the show, but I'll just make this reference. Mm-hmm. It becomes some kind of game of thrones, hunger games, fight to the death. And so rather than women helping each other and realizing that if one of us is successful, that's actually opening the doors for all of us. Then I see women constantly undermining each other uh, because they feel the pressure of the industry. Um, you know, I've made this while I think that sports television has gotten better or television in general has gotten better in terms of how they view women and what we're contributing. There's still very much this sense of like, you know, the infatuation with our looks and there's not a lot of women that get to grow old on TV and you start feeling that clock on you as soon as you start doing television and you feel like your replacement is coming through the door at any moment. So if you're established and you've been in the business Um, And I'll use the Pam Oliver, Aaron Andrews example, two women I both respect. And I'm sure that Pam Oliver, not to speak for her, but just outside looking in, as soon as they hired Aaron Andrews, she probably knew what was up. And so and I'm not saying Pam did this, but when a situation like that occurs. A lot of times, instinctually, the answer is instead of helping this woman who just came through the door, she's automatically my competition because I know she's here to replace me Mm -hmm. because again, and I put this back on management because they've made it clear, Oh, we're only going to position one of you in this limelight, one of you. So now what? And so from that standpoint, it can be very cutthroat in our business with women dealing with each other, you know, cutting each other down. Like I definitely know people in, in sports TV, people at ESPN, They will not let certain people fill in on their shows because they're afraid that person, if they're seen and they're better than them, it's going to be a problem.
1: So what's your approach?
0: My approach is always been what's for me is for me. And I don't have to undercut anybody else to get what I want. And one of the things that I was most proud of when we had his and hers, and this was by design. Mike and I both made the decision that whenever we were gone, it had to be a his and a hers, meaning that a woman was automatically going to get a platform. And I I say this not to take credit or to pat myself on the back, but that's how you get a Sarah Spain. We were the first show to put Sarah Spain on TV because I saw her at the ESPNW summit. I thought she was great. And I said, why isn't this woman doing television? And you know, uh, the producers, uh, based off our recommendation, they called Sarah in to 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 fill in for me when I was gone. And next thing you know, Sarah's doing Around the Horn and all these other great things. I just gave her a vessel. That was it, and that's how I view everything else. Like, I am always going to do what I can to make sure that the next woman is in a better position than I am. I'm not threatened by the success of other women, or even if I do, they could hire. A, you know, a black woman from Detroit tomorrow that comes into ESPN that has had the exact same career that I've had. And I trust me when I tell you I will be extending her a dinner invitation and I will help her in whatever way possible to be successful at ESPN, because her success means greater success for everybody.
1: Well, that's interesting. Are you could you see a final thing here? I mean, could you see a day? I mean, you're right. Uh, Women more than men are disposable on TV. Um, it sucks. It's bullshit, but it happens TV, film, everything. Um, could you see a day where, I don't know, 55 year old Jamel Hill is writing again full time. Is that possible? Oh, totally. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it'll be journalism though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, uh, look, you've, you've written 50, 11 books, Jeff. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have a lot to catch up to you, but uh, yeah, I would like to write a book one day. Um, And one thing that I've appreciated about doing uh, television is that it's exposed me to not just, you know, sports media, TV, but um, the industry of television overall, uh, the entertainment industry. And so I could definitely see myself writing screenplays, um, maybe writing for a television show. I'd love to pursue doing that kind of writing. Right. Um, So, yeah, like I definitely it is my full intention to return to writing.
1: And what, uh, what ride is the must ride at Lake Compounds? An amusement park, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. They have a wooden roller coaster there. I don't know what it's called, but. I've
1: been um, on it. It's called Boulder Dash.
0: That's what it is. Yes. Okay. So that's probably the ride. And, uh, I think matter of fact, last week was the ESPN, ESPN, the picnic. Cause you know, we got to put the, in front of yeah, everything. Right. <laughs> so, um, and, but everybody loves that, that picnic, but, um, yeah, no, that's probably the best right there. I'm a roller coaster addict. So, oh, yeah, so the, the taller, scarier, the better. And so like, yeah, riding that, it wasn't like when I was young, you used to go to Cedar Point, but right. it uh, you know, it, it gave me a slight fix, even though I didn't I didn't go to the picnic that, uh, this year, but I have gone the last couple of years and I make a beeline for that for that ride.
1: Right. And when I uh, when I if I come to Bristol in the future, Jamel, can will you please take me out to dinner at the finest restaurant in Bristol, Connecticut? Look,
0: only the finest wings and cheese curds for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, they, they do look, Bristol way playing, there are a couple things they do really well that you would never suspect they do really well. In all seriousness, the wing game is tight in Bristol. I don't
1: know. I, I, okay. I mean, come yeah, on. It, it, it,
0: really? It's not serious. It's two things the, the what they do in Bristol, three things wings, pizza, and Chinese food.
1: Not know- kidding. Wait, Jamel, the kidding. next thing you're going to say is, look, they have this place. It's called Buffalo Wild Wings. It's amazing. <laughs> no,
0: no, no, it's not at all. These are not – I'm not going to take you to Wingstop. I'm not going to take you – no. Don't disrespect the Wingstop or or uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. Like, no, they have legitimate, really good wing places.
1: All right. I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> listen, Jamel, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. I really, uh, truly, truly appreciate your time on this one.
0: All right. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate oh, it. Anytime. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Jamel Hill, for joining me on Two Writers Sing and Yang. One can follow Jamel on Twitter at at Jamel Hill. You can also follow her on the same handle at Instagram. And you can go to ESPN.com to read a lot of her stuff. One can listen to Two Writers Sing and Yang on both iTunes and Bumpers FM. Reviews are always appreciated. Again, the music is straight out of MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.